the promising Alzheimer's disease drug, Azuhelm, that took Biogen more than a decade to develop and which had impressive early clinical results, didn't live up to its blockbuster potential for Biogen and its investors. And more importantly, it dashed the hopes of America's aging population. Because our population is aging, Adele, and the um, Alzheimer's disease, the number one risk factor is aging. And so as our population grows older, estimates are that the current 6 million might more than double by 2050. We're looking at more than 12 million people living with Alzheimer's disease at 2050 because largely driven by an aging population unless we are able to develop effective interventions that can prevent symptoms in our elderly. Did you know? Studies show that Alzheimer's disease is the most feared disease now. It's feared more than cancer, more than stroke, and more than heart disease because it threatens the core of who we are, our memories, our identities. Hey there, news peelers. Today is February 18, 2022, and this is Adele, the host of Peel.News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this peeling the history behind news. Sometimes we find humor in what they share, sometimes it's a shocker, and sometimes they reveal a past that's offensive. Regardless of what they share, we're always the better for learning from our intellectual and engaging conversations with them. So the Peel.News is not for everyone. If you want headline news, well, you know where to get that. But if you want to explore how we got here, if you want to journey into what happened before these developments showed up as news on our TV and device screens, then grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. The FDA approved Adjuhelm in June 2021, but it's been a rough ride for the much-anticipated drug since then, and the controversy continues. As reported by the Wall Street Journal, in his resignation letter in protest to the approval of Adjuhelm, an outside advisor to the FDA stated that it's probably the worst drug approval decision in recent U.S. history. The same article quotes a financial analyst who called Adjuhelm potentially the worst drug launch of all time. And according to the New York Times, because CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, is unsure about the potential benefits of Adjuhelm versus its safety risks for patients, Medicare has limited coverage of this expensive drug to only patients that participate in approved clinical trials meaning Adjuhelm has a very small market now. To better understand what happened with Biogen's clinical trials and the excitement about Adjuhelm's potential efficacy, and to better understand the history of Alzheimer's disease, such as why haven't scientists found a cure yet, we spoke with Dr. Gil Rabinovich. He's a distinguished professor in memory and aging 
in the departments of neurology, radiology, and biomedical imaging at the University of California, San Francisco, which most of us know as UCSF. He's currently the principal investigator in a large study of early onset Alzheimer's disease involving 18,500 Medicare beneficiaries, the exciting goal of which he will describe to us in this episode. To learn more about Dr. Rabinovich, his work, his long list of publications and accomplishments, visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Dr. Rabinovich and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Rabinovich, it is such a pleasure to have you on our program today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. I have many questions to ask you about the continued quest uh, for a cure to Alzheimer's disease. There's a long history of research, clinical trials, and promising products such as Biogen's Adihelm that came out last year. But before we get there, there's a seminal question that I know is not often asked because people assume they know the answer or that they should know, and they're just reluctant to ask it. So I'll ask it here. What is Alzheimer's disease? Well, that's a key question, and I think I might address it by reviewing a little bit the history of the disease. And so the history, of, the history of Alzheimer's disease really dates back to uh, 1901, when Alice Alzheimer, who was a German neuropathologist, psychiatrist, a true Renaissance uh, physician and researcher at the time, met Augusta Dieter in an asylum in Frankfurt. Augusta Dieter was a 51-year-old homemaker who was brought in by her husband because she developed clear impairment in her memory. She also developed changes in her behavior and language abilities. And Alzheimer was really intrigued by Augusta D and what he called her disease of forgetting. He had never seen this in someone. Disease so of forgetting. Okay. Yeah. He had never seen this in someone so young. And uh, when she died in 1906, even though Alzheimer had moved to another position in Munich, he actually uh, asked to perform her brain autopsy. And in a seminal case report that he published in 1906, he described what he saw when he looked at her brain under the microscope. And what he saw was plaques that occurred between the brain cells and tangles which occurred within the brain cells. And to this day, these plaques and tangles actually define the disease neuropathologically. And the way that a pathologist makes a diagnosis of Alzheimer isn't that different from what Alzheimer did over a hundred years ago. Now, it's, it's, it's hard to think about now, but actually for most of the 20th century, Alzheimer's disease of forgetting was a forgotten disease. People attributed most dementia and late life to vascular causes or hardening of the arteries. And it really wasn't until the 1970s or even 80s that people put together the fact that actually the majority of older people who developed memory loss and dementia later in life had those same plaques and tangles that Alzheimer had described over a century or almost a century earlier. So for some 70 years or so, the neurological aspects of Alzheimer's disease were sort of brushed aside, but really not researched. Yeah. People thought of Alzheimer as a rare cause of dementia in young people, if you can believe that. And it really wasn't until late in the 20th century that that changed. Now, 
advances in molecular genetics really changed the field. We were able to learn that the plaques that Alzheimer had described were composed of aggregated forms of a sticky protein called amyloid beta that tends to deposit between the cells. We learned that the tangles that he described were composed of a sticky protein called tau, that these form the plaques and tangles, the amyloid plaques and tau tangles. And to this day, the definition of the disease is really the presence of plaques and tangles in the brain. Now, a major problem is that until quite recently, there was no way for us to actually know if people had plaques and tangles in their brain when they were alive. You know, you, you, know, you could suspect that someone might have Alzheimer's disease if they developed memory loss later in life, but there was no way to know for sure until they passed away. But that actually has changed. And that is really the modern era of Alzheimer's disease research is characterized by the ability to now detect these plaques and tangles in living people in a variety of ways. That includes brain advanced brain imaging techniques. It includes analysis of spinal fluid. And I think very excitingly, and just in the last few years, it includes increasingly accurate blood tests. And so when I went to medical school, which wasn't that long ago, it was in the late 1990s, we were taught that Alzheimer's was a clinical syndrome, that you could suspect Alzheimer's if someone had memory loss and developed dementia, um, if you ruled out other causes like strokes or brain tumors or traumatic brain injury or medical causes. And if there was no better explanation, you could say that someone probably had Alzheimer's disease. So that you're deducing, that you're deducing that someone has AD through clinical. Uh, yeah, and yeah. really through a process of eliminating other things. Yeah. There was no way to get direct biological evidence that someone has the disease. And so I think many people are still tied to this idea that Alzheimer's can be uh, only diagnosed as a clinical syndrome. But thanks to the advanced tools that we've developed for detecting the plaques and tangles, something we call biomarkers or ways of detecting these biological processes in living people, we now can go back to that core definition of the disease as plaques and tangles. And we actually know now that plaques and tangles start to develop in the brain a decade or more before people have the earliest symptoms of memory loss. And uh, for that reason, we know that when we diagnose someone with Alzheimer's because they have memory loss or dementia, we're actually diagnosing them very late in the biological process. The changes in the brain, even at that moment of early memory loss, have already been ongoing for a decade or longer. And so this is where some of the confusion lies. And it still lies even among people who do research in the field. Do we define Alzheimer's based on the clinical symptoms? Or do we find it, define it based on the biology? Yeah, I'm and wondering if the plaques that you're talking about, are they a symptom or are they the cause? Well, this is a, an area of great debate uh, in our field. Um, but there is, I think, pretty strong evidence, and this comes from genetics, that at least in some people, the development of plaques is necessary and sufficient to cause the clinical disease of Alzheimer's. This was discovered really in the, in the late, late 80s, early 90s, when uh, families that had generations of Alzheimer's, often occurring at a younger age, affecting multiple generations across a pedigree, across a family, when we started to apply modern genetic techniques to study these families, mm -hmm. it was found that all the mutations 
that cause familial forms of Alzheimer's disease are mutations in genes that directly affect the processing of amyloid in the brain. And specifically, they lead to overproduction of this amyloid protein. And in those individuals, if they have a mutation that leads their brain to overexpress the amyloid protein, these individuals develop Alzheimer's disease with basically 100% certainty, and they develop it fairly early in life, in their 30s, 40s, or 50s. And so that genetic evidence that mutations that cause familial Alzheimer's always involve amyloid has led to the idea that amyloid is an important, not just an epiphenomenon, mm-hmm. but it's an important driver of the disease, at least in these genetic cases. Now, Dr. Rabinovich, I, yeah. I just wanted to use uh, what you described to ask the following question that just I have to ask. Uh, are there like certain ethnicities or localities or gosh, races in whom you have a higher rate of um, Alzheimer's disease? Yes, there are uh, differences based on all of those factors. So number one, females are at higher risk than males. This is often an understudied issue, but it seems to be true, even accounting for the fact that females tend to live longer than males, they're at higher risk for developing Alzheimer's disease during their life. So At age 65, the lifetime risk of developing Alzheimer's is about one in five for females. In males, it's more like one in nine. So still very significant, but significantly affecting females more than males. And uh, certain um, races or ethnicities, specifically African-Americans and uh, Latino Hispanics have a higher risk of developing dementia and the clinical syndrome of Alzheimer's disease, the non-Hispanic whites. This is um, likely driven largely by social determinants of health, by different access to healthcare, education, by experiencing discrimination and systemic racism throughout life. These are factors that may uh, increase the risk of developing um, dementia and Alzheimer's. So yes, there are differences based, based on biological sex, gender, and based on race and ethnicity as well. I could ask so many questions on some of the things that you share with me, but I'm going to try to limit this to something else that you, you started uh, our conversation with, that in 1901, a young patient went to Dr. Alzheimer's in Germany. How young? How young are we talking about here? So Augusta Dieter was 51 when she first met Alzheimer in the asylum. And actually, it turned out Years later, someone tracked down the brain slides that Alzheimer had used to diagnose her and assess her brain from a basement in the hospital in Munich. They sequenced the DNA, and guess what? She had one of those mutations that cause overproduction of the amyloid protein and a familial form of Alzheimer's. She ended up having a mutation in a gene called presenilin-1, which is the most common gene associated with familial Alzheimer's. And so... One of the reasons that she had an early onset disease is because she had one of these rare gene mutations. Overall, these mutations only account for about 1% of all patients with Alzheimer's disease, but they've been very instructive in helping us to understand the biology and the mechanisms of the disease in the brain. Of the 6 million Alzheimer's disease patients uh, in our country, what, what percentage of them would you say are that young in the lower 50s? That's yeah. really young. I mean, you're still a fully productive life. 
That's right. And so um, people uh, arbitrarily define a young onset of Alzheimer's as under age 65. This is a purely arbitrary threshold. It's based on retirement age and actually the retirement age in Germany, where some of the original studies were written. But of all the people who develop Alzheimer's, it's estimated that about 5% of people develop symptoms under age 65. And of those 5%, only about 5 to 10% carry a mutation, a known mutation in one of the genes that we know cause familial Alzheimer's. So the majority of people who develop Alzheimer's at a young age, 5% of our 6 million, so around 300,000 people, develop the disease without the most significant risk factor, which is aging and without a known gene mutation. And it's a bit of a mystery why people develop Alzheimer's at such a young age. I'm actually involved in an NIH-funded study called the Longitudinal Early Onset Alzheimer's Disease. We're going to get to that. Yeah, 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 we're going to talk about that. Why don't we take a short break and then talk about clinical trials and cure? Did you know there was no controversy for the rubella and polio vaccines? Imagine that. Did you know that during the Spanish flu a century ago, you didn't need mandates for Americans to wear masks. They wore them out of fear. And do you know how the opioids problem became a crisis and why last year more than 100,000 Americans died of overdose? Or did you know that federal vaccine mandates were unheard of until this pandemic? To listen to these podcast conversations, just click the link for Public Health Series in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to my conversation with Dr. Rabanovich. Dr. Rabinovich, why haven't we discovered a cure yet? You talked about 1901, Dr. Alzheimer's, and now we're in 2022. I think we're making progress, but it's been slow progress for sure. And I, yeah. think, there are actually, I think there are actually many reasons for it. One reason is that until recently, again, we weren't able to diagnose the disease accurately in early stages in living people. So by the time we were diagnosing people, even with early stage Alzheimer's and including them in clinical trials, they were already 10, 15, maybe 20 years into the brain changes. And at wow. that stage, it may simply be too late, especially if we're intervening with you know, one therapy that's addressing one element of the disease, like the plaques or the tangles. Mm -hmm. At that stage, it might be too late. The other problem was, again, that we were making the diagnosis on clinical grounds. And so when we were diagnosing people based on memory loss as having Alzheimer's and including them in the clinical trial, probably at least 25, 30% of them actually didn't have Alzheimer's. They probably had another disease that was causing memory loss in the brain. And so we were enrolling the wrong patients. So this is Alzheimer's fail, fail diagnosis? Fail diagnosis because we, again, we were making our best guess based on their symptoms, but we weren't able to verify the presence of the disease biologically using these biomarkers. So brain scans or spinal fluid analysis that allows us to detect plaques and tangles in the brain. 
And then we didn't really know if the treatments that we were testing were working because we had no way of measuring for many, many years whether, for example, if we gave a drug that was trying to remove plaques from the brain, we had no idea if it was actually removing plaques from the brain because we had no, no way of measuring that. And so that's why these advances that really occurred in the 21st century, starting in the mid 2000s, when we developed brain scans that could first detect plaques in the brain and then tangles, and at the same time, ways of measuring concentrations of the uh, proteins that form plaques and tangles in the spinal fluid. And then finally, just in the past few years, ways of measuring these proteins now in blood that we really are able to conduct what I would call modern clinical trials. Trials when we enroll patients based on biology, not just based on symptoms, yeah, and where yeah. we can actually measure if the drugs that we're testing are hitting their target and engaging the plaques or the tangles or other elements of the disease that we're trying to modify. And then, you know, a last thing is that Alzheimer's disease and dementia are really very complicated. So even if people have plaques and tangles in their brain, they're also likely to be other brain changes that contribute to their cognitive state. <laughs> Things like microscopic strokes or changes in the blood vessels and how they work. Other proteins. That's other too many proteins. variables. How do you tell? Yeah, there are a lot of variables. There are a lot of variables. So let's think about heart disease, right? Uh-huh. And let's think about heart disease. And we know that heart disease can be caused by high blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, obesity, smoking. And we're able to now treat, to detect and treat every one of these risk factors. And as a result, we've made tremendous progress in reducing morbidity and mortality from heart disease. Now let's think about dementia that occurs in older people in a similar way and think that there are different biological processes that are contributing to dementia. So plaques and tangles of Alzheimer's disease is the most common one, but there mm -hmm. are others. There are other proteins that sticky proteins that accumulate in the brain and cause uh, cognitive changes. There are vascular besides changes. amyloid and tau. Yeah. Things like, um, Proteins called uh, alpha-synuclein. This is a protein that forms Lewy bodies in Parkinson's disease. This is a very common protein that's found in the brains of older people. There's another protein called TDP43 or that darn protein. That, <laughs> that forms, darn protein, okay. That darn protein that forms sticky deposits in memory areas in the brain is, and turns out to be a very common cause of memory impairment in older people. And so... What we're doing now in um, memory care is similar to where heart disease was maybe 20 or 30 years ago. We're identifying ways of measuring these different risk factors, if you will, plaques, tangles, Parkinson's changes, vascular changes. We're developing treatments that can intervene with every one of those biological processes. And but a major, but a major yeah. difference is that there are so many risk factors, way more than heart disease, right? based on no, what you're sharing with me. I think it's similar. I think there are different aspects of biology. Uh -huh. And we are now able to measure some of them, like plaques and tangles. We're on our way to measuring others, like the Parkinson's changes. And I think we're going to be able to parse this out. And rather than diagnose someone as having you know, dementia non-specifically or say, well, if they have dementia, it's due to one thing, Alzheimer's, we're going to be able, like we do with a heart patient, to identify all the different factors that are they may be contributing and intervene on all of them. And you know, if you'd asked me if we could do this 
20 years ago when I was in med school. Medical school, yeah. I would have said, no way. There's no way we'll be able to image plaques and tangles. There's no way we'll be able to have blood tests that can measure these proteins. And yet here we are. And that's where I'm optimistic because there has been significant progress in developing these biomarkers. And I think that really is almost a prerequisite for developing effective treatments is being able to measure these biological processes, identify them at an Mm -hmm. early stage, and then determine if the drugs that we're engaging to target them are really working. Since the 70s, have there been close moments of a breakthrough that we almost had something and it didn't work out? It's been more about incremental increases in knowledge. And there have been breakthroughs certainly that increased our understanding of the disease. And so I think a real seminal moment was when we first understood what the plaques and tangles are composed of, which specific proteins there are. Mm-hmm. When we understood which, which genes are involved in familial forms of Alzheimer's disease, that was a big insight into the biology of the disease. And it also allowed us to develop animal models of the disease, basically to engineer mice that express these mutations and then develop plaques in their brain. They develop Alzheimer's disease, if you will. Yeah, and these yeah, are models yeah. for us to understand the biology of the disease and to test different treatments. Um, a major important factor was understanding the most common gene that leads to Alzheimer's, not in those rare 1% of people who have mutations that cause the disease, but a genetic risk factor called ApoE4 that increases people's lifetime risk of getting the disease about threefold. Um, that is a very important uh How common is that among the Alzheimer's disease population? Yeah, so about one in five of us carry at least one copy of ApoE4 in the normal population. And if you have one copy of ApoE4, you have about a threefold higher risk of developing the disease during your life. If you have two copies, if you inherit one from your father and one from your mother, you have about a 10 to 15 times higher like a recessive developing the disease. And so this isn't a deterministic gene in the sense that some people have this gene and never get Alzheimer's. And many people have Alzheimer's and don't have this genetic risk factor, but it's a very strong, in fact, the strongest genetic risk factor for getting the disease outside of those mutations that we talked about earlier. And then, you know, I think that a really, really important moments in the field were the development of these brain scans that allowed us to image and quantify plaques in living people, again, a decade or more before they have symptoms. I still remember being a neurology resident at UCSF when I read the Mm. first paper in 2004 that described PET scans, special brain scans that Mm -hmm, detected mm -hmm. amyloid plaques. I think it was in 13 patients with Alzheimer's. And I thought, boy, this is amazing. And I've I've spent my career working (laughs) on this technology. And then about 10 years later, brain scans that could detect the tangles. And I think, again, we're really in the um, seeing a revolution now with blood tests because brain scans or spinal fluid tests that require a spinal tap, these tests are either expensive, they involve radiation exposure, they're invasive if you're thinking about the spinal tap, but a blood test, what could be more accessible and cost-effective yeah. than a blood test? And we're really, really getting there. So I think that represents a major advance. And you know, with all the rocky ground around Adjuhelm, and I, I know we'll talk a little bit about it, but this is an antibody that's infused in the blood and removes plaques from the brain. It's pretty clear that it does that. It's 
less clear if that translates into a cognitive benefit. But nevertheless, I think we are right now at the precipice of another major sort of watershed moment in, in the history of the field when we are now developing treatments that modify the biology of the disease, the core biology of the disease. And I think we'll look back, whatever happens with Adjihelm, we'll look back and say, well, this was a real moment, um, an inflection point where we were able to change the biology of the disease. And it was the beginning of a new era of modern therapies for, the, for Alzheimer's. Dr. Rabinovich, there was so much controversy about Biogen's Adjihelm. Uh, and FDA advisors resigned and openly criticized, and many pharma business experts criticized the product launch on the business side, one calling it the worst ever product launch in pharma. What went wrong? What happened? You know, um, there were a lot of mistakes that were made. This treatment started as something that was incredibly promising. Yeah, yeah, I remember. The first studies that were done around 2015 showed that we could infuse an antibody into the blood and that this resulted in removing plaques from the brain on brain scans. So the people who had a brain full of plaques, after a year or so of treatment, we were able to remove all of those plaques from the brain. And this actually made- That's exciting. It made the cover of Nature, which is you know one of the two most prestigious journals in science. Yeah, it was in the um, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, like you know. So, so there was a lot of fanfare around this, and actually the company skipped from doing what's so normally drugs are developed in three phases: one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. And in phase two, in particular, you find the right dose of the drug and you establish its safety. And they actually skipped from phase one, which is when these exciting preliminary results showed the plaques were melting away, immediately to a phase three program. And in retrospect- Why would they do that? Because they thought they had a blockbuster, because they thought they understood enough about the dosing of the drug and the safety profiles. And it turned out that they weren't quite there. And so when they they immediately launched two large international phase three studies, phase three studies are now studies that are designed to determine whether a drug works or not. They randomized over 3000 people to receive either placebo, a low dose of the drug or a high dose of the drug. And it turns out there was a lot more we still needed to learn about the drug. So they ended up needing to modify the trials in the middle They actually stopped the trials early on because they did an analysis called a futility analysis that suggested that the trials together were unlikely to yield a positive result. And then about seven months later, they actually analyzed all the data that had come in and they said, wait a minute, actually, even though we terminated these trials early, one of the trials hit its endpoint. It was positive. It showed that people who took the high dose of the drug progressed less in terms of their memory and function than people who took placebo. The other study showed absolutely no effect. And both studies were terminated early. There were major differences in dosing in the middle of the trial, such that the people in the positive trial actually ended up receiving higher doses of the medicine than the people in the trial that didn't show an effect. So that was a big problem. And so they went to FDA then with these very complicated and contradicting data sets. And the FDA advisory committee said, you know, this is maybe promising, but we don't have enough evidence yet to um, approve the drug. The FDA then took a different approach 
And they ended up approving the drugs in something called an accelerated approval based on a biomarker result. The FDA approved the drug based on the result that plaques had been removed for the brain in both of the trials. They were able to replicate that element from their earlier study. And the FDA concluded based on evidence from these trials and other similar drugs that lowering plaques in the brain was reasonably likely to predict a clinical benefit. And so the accelerated approval pathway in the FDA has been used to treat very severe diseases where there are very few options available. So initially, actually, it was used to get HIV drugs into the market. Mm -hmm. It's been used now in oncology quite often to get new cancer drugs into the market so that people who have Basically, benefits outweigh the risk at this point. Let's get them to the market, that sort of thing. Well, it's really, you know, patients have very few options if they have certain cancers early on, if they had HIV, and currently if they have Alzheimer's. I mean, there really isn't a lot that you can offer someone with early stage Alzheimer's. And so the idea is let's put these drugs to market. Let's give people the option, at least, of deciding if they want to be on a therapy, recognizing that it's not the efficacy of the therapy, its effectiveness is not yet established, but maybe they want to try it. And the FDA, I understand, felt a real um, er, a real need to put a drug that showed a lot of promising results into the market, but also this drug was pushed to market before there was certainly broad consensus, even in the Alzheimer's research community, that the drug was effective. Now, I happen to believe, based on other drugs that have a similar that work in a similar way and are showing similar results that the mm-hmm. positive trial was probably right that this drug probably does slow decline a bit it's not a home run it's more maybe more like a bunt single if we're going to use a baseball <laughs> analogy yeah, yeah, yeah. but it was moving things slightly but not everyone agrees with that and i think reasonable people can agree to disagree but as a result because the fda pushed this drug into market for understandable reasons it's created a lot of controversy. And so that's on the science side, why there's a lot of controversy with this drug. I think a lot of people, myself included, before the approval said, well, let's do a third clinical trial. Let's really figure out if the right dose of the drug works. Let's that could take years, high. right? But yeah, well, the downside is that takes years. And so um, you know, the drug was, was moved to market before there was definitive evidence, certainly of clinical benefit. And that generated a lot of scientific controversy. Now, there are a lot of other issues around the launch of this product, including the initial uh, list price, which I believe was $56,000 a year. That was later half to about $28,000 yeah, yeah, a year. Yeah. And there have been a lot of politics and, and business issues around the launch, which, you know, I'm a scientist. I don't like to get involved <laughs> in those controversies. But you can understand, I think, why there's scientific controversy. This yeah, was certainly. The, first, the first amyloid lowering drug that ever potentially showed a benefit, but it wasn't clear. And a lot of people felt that another trial would be necessary to really establish whether this drug not whether it removes amyloid plaques, there's no doubt that it does that, but whether it really helps slow the decline in memory, which is what's critical for patients and families. Yeah, Dr. Rabinovich, uh, we'll be back after a short break to talk about your research in Alzheimer's disease. We'll be right back. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. 
tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Rabinovich, you are a principal investigator of a large study on early onset Alzheimer's disease. Please tell us about your research. Yeah, so my research program in general has been really focused on how do we um, translate these new technologies that we're developing in research, like brain scans that detect plaques and tangles. How do Mm -hmm. we translate those into real world populations? And how do we actually take what we're doing at research centers like UCSF and bring it to patients who are being seen in real world memory care? And so one of the major initiatives that I've been involved in, and I'll I'll get to the early onset Alzheimer's study in a moment, but one of the major initiatives that I've been involved in is actually a partnership with the Alzheimer's Association and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, where Medicare, which doesn't actually broadly cover amyloid PET scans, agreed to cover amyloid PET scans in about 18,000 people seen across the country who had early cognitive impairment to determine whether doing the scans was actually affecting patient care and improving patient outcomes. And so this was a large study called the IDEAS study. We recruited over 18,000 people in about 600 sites across the United States over two years. And what we found was that amyloid PET scans had a huge impact on the diagnosis and care of patients. The diagnosis after the PET scan changed in about a third of people in our study About 25% of the time, it changed actually from Alzheimer's to a different cause of dementia because there were no plaques in the brain. And about 10%, plaques were found when they weren't expected, and the diagnosis changed to Alzheimer's. And key elements of patient management changed in over 60% of patients. And so this is just an example of how important it is to translate these new technologies into real-world care. Um, Another major uh, focus of my research has been the population that you mentioned, which is people that develop Alzheimer's disease at a young age, again, at age 65 or earlier. This is an age in which no one expects to Is that what early onset means? Early onset under age 65. And, you know, this is a very productive and busy time of life. People are often caring for aging parents and mm-hmm. for their own children at this point. Oh, stage. yeah, I'm there. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, you know, this has a real impact on a patient, a disproportionate, I would say, impact on patients and care partners. And actually, it turns out to be very difficult to diagnose Alzheimer's at this young age. Uh, first of all, because people don't really have Alzheimer's on their radar at a young age. Like that, you know, a primary care physician or even a neurologist might attribute cognitive changes in their patients to depression or sleep disorders. If they're women, people talk about menopause. And it really takes a long time to understand that, yes, this person is young, but it actually is Alzheimer's. And then Alzheimer's at a young age. If I may, please, one of my questions actually follows that. Are you having a difficult time uh, enrolling patients because finding these patients is difficult? At a young age? Oh, well, we, we find them, you know, they find us, but it's usually been three or four years between when they develop their symptoms and when they find their way to a specialist and a diagnosis. So not only do they have a young age, but they often have unusual symptoms. Rather than memory loss, they might have trouble 
in their abilities to plan and multitask, their focus or concentration. They might have changes in their language abilities, so they have a harder time coming up with words. And some people, it even has changes in their vision. They have trouble driving at night or reading. They end up getting a cataract surgery because someone finds a cataract and it takes a while to understand that their problem is a brain problem, not an eye problem. So unusually young age of onset, atypical symptoms means people have a hard time getting a diagnosis. But these are often the people who end up being seen at university centers and centers that have an expertise in Alzheimer's disease. And so along with my colleagues, Dr. Liana Postolova at Indiana University, Brad Dickerson at Massachusetts General Hospital, and Maria Carrillo of the Alzheimer's Association, we launched a large national study following people who have early onset Alzheimer's um, across about 20 sites in the US. This is a study that's funded by the National Institutes of Health, the National Institute of Aging. And we really are trying to understand why people might be at risk for developing the disease at such a young age if they don't have one of the known genetic risk factors, especially. Um, what can we learn about the disease from people who develop the disease at such a young age? How can we better support patients and families who are struggling with early onset Alzheimer's? And ultimately, how can we help get patients with early onset into um, drug trials and towards better treatments? And so that's been another major focus of my research over the past few years. Dr. Rabinovich, you've, you've, you've used the word treatment several times in this segment and also in the previous segment. You were saying we're at a precipice, precipice uh, of, of uh, you know, breakthrough for treatment. Treatment is not cure. Am I correct? You're correct. I don't think we will think about curing Alzheimer's like we can treat, you know, cure pneumonia or appendicitis. Um, Alzheimer's is a complicated multifactorial disease. It's much more similar to heart disease or diabetes. It's something that we will need to manage. And the goal, I think, is you know, not, I don't think cure is, is, is the right um, target, but really to manage so that we can either prevent the onset of symptoms. Again, I told you these changes in the brain are occurring 10 years or more. Yeah, yeah. So because Alzheimer's is a disease of aging, if we could even delay the onset of symptoms by about five years on average, that would reduce someone's lifetime risk of developing dementia by over 50%. Um, and then once people do have symptoms, can we keep them at that early stage where they're still functioning pretty well? So when people have early symptoms of Alzheimer's, they may have memory loss, they might need to write more extensive to-do lists or you know, to check, double check their calendar, but people are still able to function yeah. independently for a long time. And if we could just keep them at that stage, as opposed to the stage where they develop dementia, where they're not able to care for themselves independently, and especially in late stages, when people really require custodial care to take care of their basic needs, eating, toilet, hygiene, if we could keep people at that early stage for as long as possible, people are still functioning very well and have good quality of life. And that's where a treatment like Adrihel might help. If you could keep people at that early symptomatic stage where they're still functioning largely independently, able to do most things that they like doing, able to have meaningful time with their family and loved ones, in some cases still able to work, that would be a huge, make a huge impact on the lives of these patients. So that's that's a very positive outlook on where we are and where we're headed. Um, sort of, we don't need to look for this cure that may be, you know, may 
elusive uh, for years to yeah, come. I mean, right. I mean, I think that, you know, the science fiction would be, can we regenerate brain areas that yeah. have been injured by Alzheimer's? Can we get the brain to work at age 80 like it did at age 30? And, you know, maybe we'll get there. I don't, I never uh, want to downplay the potential of, of yeah. uh, humans and, and modern medicine, but I think now we are close to that realistic goal of if the biology is starting in the brain, can we delay it? Can we prevent it? Can we keep people asymptomatic or in early symptomatic stages? Um, you know, can we, uh, to use COVID as an analogy that's on everyone's mind, can we prevent those hospitalizations and deaths and turn this into a common cold rather than a life-threatening virus? That's a very and, good analogy. Yeah, I uh, get that. And, and that's, and that's, I think, you know, we're, we're getting there though. We're really uh, inching towards that uh, in the last few years. That takes a lot of right factor out of it as well. And I think a lot of people, elderly people will be more open to um, sort of not self-diagnose, but be more aware of their own um, health and symptoms. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Rabinovich as we get into the perspective. Hey there, news peelers. We're working on a brand new website with many super duper features, including videos of our guests and compilations of our episodes into series with related blogs that are updated weekly, like series on U.S. politics, economy, health policies, environment, women's rights, and also series on many other countries like Russia, Ukraine, China, and Brazil, and the British monarchy, and also a series on revolutions and protests like those in Iran, Israel, and France. So be sure to check it out at historybehindnews.com. See you guys there. Dr. Rabinovich, has public funding been an issue? for Alzheimer's disease research? You know, Adele, for many years it was, even though this is one of the top public health challenges facing us as a country, the NIH budget for uh, supporting research in Alzheimer's disease until um, the mid 20, even in the early 2010s was around $500 million. So it was, you know, maybe, six of what we spent on other major diseases like that's, cancer. That's less than uh, what it takes to dr develop uh, even one drug for many drugs, right? And there now, are right. Now, thanks to really broad bipartisan support and thanks to um, a lot of um, uh, advocacy from organizations like the Alzheimer's Association, the NIH budget for supporting Alzheimer's research has grown significantly. So it's now over $3 billion a year. And, oh, nice. and so I think that for many years, young scientists and doctors were actually a little bit weary of entering this field. A, it's a really hard field. I think very rewarding, but difficult. And second, there wasn't the funding there, but that's changed dramatically. And then there are also major philanthropic organizations like the Alzheimer's Association and others in this space that provide research funding to young scientists who are interested in breaking into Alzheimer's research. And so funding has greatly improved. And I think that now as a field, if we don't come up with better treatments, we won't be able honestly to use lack of funding as an excuse. 
I know my father's 91 years old and thank God he doesn't have Alzheimer's disease, but he keeps on writing these checks to Alzheimer's disease uh, foundations and they're very active. Um, uh, do you think that Adjuhelm's story will dampen private funding? Uh, are, are big pharma or even startups less reluctant to jump into this? Hopefully not. I just I'm just wondering what you think. Yeah, it's it's one of the critiques. Alzheimer's has been a very risky preposition. You know, the, a huge overwhelming proportion of drugs that are in the pipeline show a benefit, and um, many large pharma have actually shied away from all of their dementia and neurodegeneration platforms. But I think many pharma are in it for the long run. Like I said, I do think we are at the precipice where we have, we are able to impact the biology of the disease and we're seeing early signs that that improves outcomes for patients. So I think if you ask my personal opinion, I think this will be a blip and that other drugs nice. more effective, maybe safer, will follow in the footsteps um, of Adjuhelm. So I'm glad I, to hear that. But, yeah. you know, I'm an optimist, so <laughs> I, I don't think that it will, in the long run, have a negative impact on innovation in this space. Are there any studies that analyze the economic impact of Alzheimer's disease? And I know that's such a vague question, the economic, you know, it's just so multifaceted, but um, it's... Yeah, you know. Yes, definitely. It has a huge... Uh, economic impact. So the current estimates are that um, the cost of Alzheimer's to our healthcare system is about $350 billion a year. Wow. And so um, it is a huge public health expense. A lot of that is charged to Medicare and Medicaid, but a lot of those expenses also come out of pocket for patients and families. Many times, a care partner, a caregiver needs to assume care for someone with Alzheimer's disease. And that is unpaid care that they are doing. They're not compensated. There may be an opportunity cost where they're not able to work because they're caring yeah. for a loved one, a parent, sometimes a spouse. And so um, it has a huge impact throughout our economy and, and that will continue to grow because our population is aging, Adele. And the um, Alzheimer's disease, the number one risk factor is aging. And so as our population grows older, estimates are that the current 6 million might more than double by 2050. We're looking at more than 12 million people living with Alzheimer's disease at 2050 because largely driven by an aging population, unless we are able to develop effective interventions that can prevent symptoms in our elderly. Or, or some of the treatments that you were talking about that enable them to quote unquote live a functional life with Alzheimer's disease, right? Exactly, exactly. Or to even postpone the symptoms. You know, if we, if you could get a well check at age seventy and have a blood test, and that blood test shows that you're starting to accumulate amyloid plaques, and you could take a medicine once a day that would reduce the amyloid in your brain, you might be able to prevent ever developing symptoms. You know, by five years, 10 years, and you might never develop Alzheimer's symptoms throughout your life. And so that's where that's where we're aiming to, to reach. Hopefully we will get to that point sooner rather than later. If you wanted our audience to remember just one point about Alzheimer's disease after everything we've talked about, what would it be? 
I think that there is a lot of value in an early diagnosis and in having an evaluation. As you said, we don't have cures for the disease, but I think it is very important for people's safety, for their peace of mind, to understand that the changes that they're observing in themselves, are those just normal changes that are happening due to aging or is there something else going on that might require more safety nets, more planning, um, maybe lifestyle changes. Um, we didn't talk about exercise, diet, sleep, but those are all important in modifying the likelihood of Alzheimer's disease. That, that almost sounds like a holistic approach to health. But it has a strong scientific basis. Um, all of these things are good for the brain. What we eat, how much we sleep. When we sleep, we actually clear these bad proteins from the brain, amyloid and tau that form plaques and tangles. Our diet is incredibly important in maintaining the health of our blood vessels. When we exercise, our brain releases growth factors that promote new connections and plasticity and help the brain adapt and maybe compensate for other changes like Alzheimer's changes. So all of these things actually have a strong scientific basis. When I go to meetings on Alzheimer's disease and I go to the hotel gym, the gym is full of all the Alzheimer's researchers who are attending the conference and they're all on the treadmills <laughs> and the ellipticals. So, you know, this is a rare case of doctors practicing what they preach. But studies show, I mean, to get serious again, studies show that Alzheimer's is the most feared disease now, especially yeah. for older people. People fear it more than cancer, more than stroke, more than heart disease. It really threatens the core of who we are, our memories, our identity. But there are things that we can do and there are interventions now um, that can modify the course of the disease and help promote quality of life. And so if there's one message for your listeners, it's just don't, don't be scared. Let's destigmatize this disease. Let's uh, change it from you know uh, COVID of March 2020 to a common cold coronavirus, hopefully. Hopefully, so, um, hey, from your lips to God's ears, yeah. And I think destigmatizing this, I think uh, understanding that a lot of people who have the changes of Alzheimer's in the brain are highly functional, very articulate, able to care for themselves, able to function normally, able to articulate their own experience of the disease. Let's not think about the stereotype of someone who is completely disabled in late stages of Alzheimer's, because really what we're trying to do is shift the disease into that paradigm. Dr. Rabinovich, uh, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the Peel.News anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. 
Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the Peel.News, we peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective to our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments about this episode right on our homepage at www.thepeel.news. Just click the email icon in the lower right corner of your screen. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele, the host of the Peel.News.